from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm John Springfield, Deputy Director of the CER. This is the fourth in our series of podcasts on our CER Ditchley Economics Conference. And the pandemic has meant that we don't get to hang out together as usual, and we're having to do it on Zoom. But we've had some great speakers this year who wouldn't have been able to make the trip to England. And the quality of discussion, I think, is, am is among the best that we've ever had. Um, I've been wondering if this is how the onlineification of working life works, really. You don't get as much small talk and gossip because there are fewer moments for impromptu chats. But you do get to talk to a bigger range of people because everybody's online. So that's a good thing. Anyway, the title of this week's session is Can the EU use trade and investment policy to advance its strategic goals? I thought we should have should in there too, but was told no, that would make it a bit too wordy, as in should the EU use trade and investment policy in this way? The classic neoliberal answer to this question is no, obviously not. Multinational institutions are the way forward because they stop some countries from free riding on others by keeping their markets closed while everyone else opens theirs. And trade and investment policies should be about increasing trade and investment rather than lots of other things. But trade policy has been becoming less and less Ricardian, quote unquote, in the last four years with Brexit, Trump and an increasingly powerful China. As ever with our Ditchley podcasts, we'll play the opening remarks of our speakers edited down a little. The focus of their remarks were on global developments in Europe. And then I'll be joined by Sumaya Keynes, Trade and Globalisation Editor at The Economist. She's going to help dig into US politics a little bit more and specifically whether Biden's trade policy will be that different to Trump's. Our first speaker at the event was Caroline Freund. She's Global Director of Trade, Investment and Competitiveness at the World Bank. And she set the global scene for the other speakers, explaining whether slow ballization had set in in earnest, and if so, why? What was happening before the, before the COVID crisis hit? Well, we had this period of slow ballization. I see Sumaya Keynes, and I think they and the economist came up with that term. And there were sort of three reasons for that. There was this slowdown in growth and without growth, you don't need as much trade because part of trade is, is in the capital that's going into investment and so forth. The technology supporting trade changing uh, also had uh, not been moving as quickly. And there was a really big slowdown in liberalization. So we didn't see the kind of major trade agreements we saw in the previous period. Um, but this is not the first time trade growth has been slow. She went on to say there was a big slowdown in trade in the 1980s too, after a big increase in the 1960s and 70s. But that didn't stop another acceleration in the 1990s and 2000s. There was NAFTA, loads of countries joined the EU, China acceded to the World Trade Organization, um, and computers made it easier to pack ships and manage supply chains. We saw poorer countries get a lot richer as a result of all of these changes. Could we see the same thing happening over the next decade? And I just want to say really anything could happen just like in the 1980s. We could fall into true trade blocks, 
but there's also new technologies which are being adopted faster than ever during this period that will support trade growth. Blockchain, AI, better packing of ships, um, rethinking the way we trade. More than anything, services trade. So we're having these kind of conferences electronically. Businesses can communicate more easily. They realize they can communicate with people far away almost as easily as people close by. Our work looking at automation, the other side of this also suggests it doesn't really retard trade. Automation increases productivity, which means prices fall, there's more demand for goods, et cetera. And that means there's more demand for the inputs that go into those goods that might not be produced locally. So automation doesn't necessarily retard trade either. So I think there are some reasons for hope. There's the CPTPP. It's not as big as envisioned, but it's very deep. There's the recently approved RCEP, which is not as deep, but it's big. Um, there's the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, lots of countries in that. So if the WTO is ready to address its existing problems, subsidies, SOEs, new data issues, and sustainability, these are big issues. But if it can address these, I really think there's, there's room for hope. There's also potential for a transatlantic treaty uh, given the alignment uh, amount around many issues, especially the sustainability agenda. But the really big question is how the system adapts to the rise of China. China will be the largest economy. It's had the strongest recovery uh, from COVID. So it's in some sense growing even relatively faster than it was before relative to the rest of the world. It controls some of the resources the world needs. Um, all firms around the world want part of that big and fast growing market. Uh, and we're in a situation where the US and its allies might be more likely to work together to confront China on key issues. Our next speaker was Anu Bradford of Columbia University, whose book, The Brussels Effect, i.e. the way in which European standards and rules are exported around the world, has been a helpful guide to the world of Trump and has been quite influential uh, among EU officials. Her thesis has obviously underpinned a lot of Europe's thinking about how it can manage a world of strategic competition and maybe able to find a way to defend its economic interests in that world. So this is what I've written uh, in the and, and called it the Brussels effect, describing how the EU has become a regulatory superstate or the global regulatory hegemon. And uh, by that, I, I mean that the EU is able to regulate often the global markets unilaterally. Being one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world, there are very few companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So in order to trade in the EU, they do follow the European rules. But often they find that it is in their interest to extend those rules across the global marketplace because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple regulatory regimes. So effectively, all the EU needs to do is to regulate the single market. And it's then the global companies that are extending those rules and transposing them across uh, the world markets. That Brussels effect makes competition fairer for EU companies, making other companies globally use similar standards. And it allows the EU to export its way of regulating markets and thus its values she said. But the EU doesn't have any domestic tech giants and the internet is a pretty unruly place. 
So will the EU be able to use the Brussels effect to its advantage in the brave new online world? Anu Bradford says yes. But then if we think uh, about the digital economy, where the most uh, critical uh, regulatory battles currently are being fought in the midst of these trade and technology wars, and whether the Brussels effect can shape that uh, policy sphere as well. So in many ways, we see that the EU has made important strides, especially through the regulation of privacy. The GDPR um, is a de facto global standard, um, setting the ways that companies uh, conduct their business, but also it has been replicated by many governments around the world. Um, hate speech online, another critical uh, element of the EU's regulatory uh, sphere, has also uh, been very influential. But we also see that there's going to be a next frontier where the EU is actively trying to further regulate this sector of the economy. Just today, we saw the new Data Governance Act being revealed. Next in line, we're waiting for the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act. So there's going to be a lot of regulation of competition, of content moderation, of privacy and trade flows. And then we obviously have digital uh, services tax and the other issues also in the pipeline to be resolved. Bradford argued that the EU should not use its regulatory power to try to create European champions or to bring production onshore. Instead, it should try to strengthen competitive forces at home by extending the single market, creating a capital markets union to fund more innovation and improving its innovation regime generally. And it should, should seek to cooperate with the US to challenge China's authoritarian values when it came to technology. But if there is a common concern that the EU and the US fundamentally share, that can become the foundation of their cooperation, especially under the Biden administration. And that common denominator is not, I would say, a, a common enemy, but a common challenge embodied by the Chinese model for the, for the technology governance. So in many ways, that Chinese digital authoritarianism makes the EU and the US equally uncomfortable. Because if you look at how China is building the digital Silk Road, how it is basically having its companies with varying ties, varying ties to the, the, uh, the Communist Party, build the infrastructure across the world and entrench its standards in that process how it's exporting the AI surveillance technologies to many governments around the world that are deploying those technologies towards illiberal ends, or how the China has really taken over some of the key international organizations, such as ICANN or International Telecommunications Union, and using that position to further leverage its influence. So let me end uh, with what I would like to see the US and the EU then do jointly. So I think they should work together in these international organizations to counter the Chinese influence. Our third speaker is Gabriel Felbermeyer, who's president of the Kiel Institute of the World Economy. He argued that people were belatedly realizing that trade would be about geopolitics and the dream of everyone happily trading freely under a multilateral framework was not going to happen. Um, I think many in Europe have realized that we need to bring together geoeconomics and geopolitics and that thinking in silos was possible under the end of history paradigm just after the end of the world war but that's over donald trump has delivered that message and it has been heard um, many in germany for example have adjusted their positions for example the german federation of industry um, i also see a shift uh, in, in the minds of trade economists like myself uh, 
think since at least Adam Smith, we have known that specialization requires trust, that trade partners do not behave opportunistically at any time. And in a world with strategic rivalries, such behavior cannot be simply assumed. I think that in Europe, many are beginning to understand this and work has started uh, uh, in sharpening existing instruments or developing new ones. I think what is, you know, the, the name of the game here is credibility. I'm thinking about investment screening or revision of anti-dumping or anti-subsidy methodologies. But uh, as Anu uh, said, we need to go beyond uh, the classical trade investment disciplines into, for example, the development of a proper independent payment system, uh, where there is already some progress, but it's not making the inroads that we thought there should be. There's data protection, all the uh, issues connected to digital economy. And we probably also have to, to, uh, to have a, a fund uh, within Europe to deal with the collateral damages resulting from a more robust trade stance and so forth. Ideally, all these defensive instruments are fully developed and ready to use, but ideally their credibility is enough to incentivize partner countries to take European interests seriously. Uh, in other words, uh, we need to prepare for war in order to keep the peace. That may sound outlandish in trade policy, but it, in, in many ways it has been the building principle behind the GATT and the WTO for many decades. Countries cooperated and they forewent opportunistic action because they knew that there would be sanctions. Regulated sanctions, certainly watched over by the WTO, but sanctions nonetheless. But Felvermeyer did not think we should give up on trying to ensure openness. The EU, just like the US and China, should have the right to regulate its own markets. But that did not have to mean that their markets would inevitably have to be more closed. Um, I think the EU and um, uh, all other WTO members should be well advised to continue designing their regulations in the least trade distorting way and without uh, uh, discriminating against foreign competitors. That is not a, a side effect that one could accept from times to times, but is a no-go in all, in, in all circumstances. And politicians need to be careful. They need to be more careful, I think. Maybe you have seen Thierry Breton uh, in the summer, the EU commissioner responsible for the single market, who tweeted that the EU taxes, the new EU taxes that will need uh, to, uh, to pay back the debt that the EU now takes on, takes on that those taxes will be paid not by, I quote, fellow European citizens, but only at the border of our internal market. This sounds terribly like an attempt to beggar our neighbors, and that is not the spirit, I think, uh, that we should adopt here. And for Felbermeyer, it was important to defend the World Trade Organization principle that we should seek a level playing field when it came to taxes on business, but not for everything else. Countries are free to regulate and they need to be free to regulate. Uh, and the rules under which they can do so, I think, are set out in GATT Articles 1 and 3. And uh, uh, these uh, rules that we have there should be uh, the ones we should obey in the future as well. We are not allowed, uh, according to these rules, to adjust for different production costs, whether they are driven by market conditions or regulation or institutions, but we are allowed to adjust for indirect taxes. And that is just right so. This is a principle, I think, that must be defended. Walking away from it would negate the basic nature of comparative advantage and could, at the end, lead to a, a complete collapse of trade. This principle is why he thought that a border carbon adjustment mechanism would be difficult to, to defend at the WTO. This would mean the EU taxing carbon-intensive imports from countries which it 
deems to not have as tough emissions control as the European Union itself. Felbermeyer had another idea. Let me end with a proposal that is, is gaining some ground in, in Germany, at least uh, um, in my view. The idea there um, is to continue with the European ETS as we currently have it, including the free allocation of certificates to energy intensive and trade intensive industries, but complement that with a tax on the domestic, domestic consumption of carbon intensive goods, whether they are produced domestically or imported. imported. That would not be a border measure. So it would, we would not probably talk about carbon border adjustment because it's an entirely interior uh, internal instrument but it would nonetheless result in a level playing field, both domestically and on the export market. Our final speaker was Alan Beatty, global trade writer at the Financial Times. He started by suggesting how Biden's trade policy might differ from Trump's. The thing is, we spent the last four years now seeing what the world is like without the US leading the international institutions or at least cooperating with them, certainly the WTO in my particular um, field, and trying to do things bilaterally. You know, their philosophy, certainly Bob Lighthizer's philosophy at USTR, is all about bilateral power. You see what the US interests are, which are quite narrowly defined. You see what leverage you have, leverage you have, and you use coercion through that leverage to try and achieve those goals. Now, the good news for the EU, for the, for the prospect of doing it more cooperative basis with Biden is that fairly clearly hasn't worked. You know, China has not noticeably changed its behavior. The bilateral deal with Beijing, the phase one bilateral deal, um, hasn't even managed to produce soybean exports, um, you know, let alone the sort of fundamental reorientation of, of China's economy that, that, uh, that the US was after. So in theory, <clears throat> there's a big opportunity here to establish cooperation with the US. But the thing is, it's a mistake to assume, right? It, it might turn out to be better than I think, but it's a mistake to assume that there's a fundamental difference in desired outcome between a Biden administration and a Trump administration. Both want to restrain China. Both want a measure of economic independence from China. Biden is much less obsessed with, with deficits, which is good, but certainly wants a, a, a big degree of economic independence from China and from other hostile states. He argued that the EU's ability to get the US on side was therefore a question of tactics. It was certainly easier with Biden than with Trump, who had been actively hostile. But EU and US officials had a tendency to talk past one another. Uh, I'm generalising you massive here. Please, please forgive me for generalising. But I think the EU, certainly the Commission, Commission officials, have a tendency to think and talk, if not necessarily to act, in terms of abstract principle, right? It's a French influence. Um, they will use expressions like open strategic autonomy. Americans, generalising massively, are functionalists. They'd say, what will this do? Tell me what this is going to do. They will support collective action. They will support multilateral institutions, but not on principle. They'll do so insofar as it actually advances their, um, their goals. And by the way, this is true of most uh, institutions. Maybe the Bill Clinton, what well, was the last instinctively multilateralist institution. Since then, certainly under Obama, um, they've been taking a much more pragmatic view. You remember, it was the Obama administration that killed the Doha round, the WTO. Um, and it was the Obama administration, although it did not kill the appellate body in, in the WTO, it did start the principle of refusing to reappoint individual judges, not judges collectively, but individual judges, um, because they didn't like the way that they were uh, voting. The European Commission should not pretend that it is a foreign policy player and suggest that it has a guiding philosophy for its actions in a range of domains. I don't think the EU can, should oversell what it can do. Right? It can tell stories to itself about being a foreign policy player, sure, 
but don't imagine the Americans will believe them. You're not going to impress people in Washington by going, we're in favor of open strategic autonomy, because the answer will be, oh, great. So where are you guys on creating a China-free supply chain for rare earth minerals? Where are you on getting Huawei out of 5G? Where are you on Chinese subsidies? Where are you on the growth model? Where are you on security in the South China Sea? What about international data flow? Um, and certainly collectively, the commission has to be careful to talk about only the things it has control over and be honest about them. So specifically with those issues, the answers are, well, <clears throat> we have this raw materials initiative alliance that we've just launched, but to be frank, it's at very early stages and it's tough to scale up. We'd really welcome your help on that. What can we do together? With Huawei, the correct answer is, well, that's a question for member states. We can't deliver. We've provided them the toolkit. We can give you our candid confidential assessment of where things are, but we can't deliver ourselves. On Chinese subsidies, the correct answer is, well, as you know, we've put together a trilateral initiative with you and the Japanese to come up with new changes to the changes to the WTO rulebook on subsidies. Um, but with the greatest will in the world, uh, it's kind of unlikely that those are going to be accepted easily at the WTO because China can block them. OK, so what can we do otherwise? Hmm, maybe we could think of other fora to push them in, OECD, other sorts of fora. And maybe in the meantime, we do what we can about working around um, uh, rulings that are already there and launch some more cases in dispute settlement. But of course, you'll need to unlock WTO dispute settlement to do that. And then the US has an actual incentive to unblock WTO dispute settlement because they get something out of it. You presented the US with a narrative to tell their own voters, we're unblocking the WTO so we can go after China. I'm joined by Sumaya Keynes, who's trade and globalization editor uh, at The Economist and co-host of the Trade Talks podcast. Hi, Sumaya. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, Sumaya has been kind enough to um, offer us a little bit of analysis of a subject which I think wasn't covered as much as we might have hoped in the uh, event uh, that we held on, on trade and investment last week. Uh, the session was very much for Europeans, uh, Europeanists who are based in Europe talking about trade and investment. Um, and obviously, Sumaya is also European, uh, but she's in the United States and she follows US politics quite closely. So we thought we could talk about the US politics of trade and the new Biden administration, because obviously this is a, a key topic. So, Sumaya, uh, the first question, I guess, is there was an assumption among our speakers that Biden's going to be a bit easier for Europeans to deal with Trump, uh, at least in trade policy terms. And Biden has been pretty clear that he's he wants to rebuild the West as an alliance and a less antagonistic trade policy might be a part of that. Um, but then again, you know, my colleague Sam Lowe has repeatedly told us and told me in particular that US trade representatives' complaints about EU trade practices were very similar under Obama as they were under Trump. So that kind of seems to count against the idea that there's going to be a transformation. Um, so, yeah, what do you think? Do you think there's going to be a big difference? Uh, I think there will be some differences. I think the most obvious one is is just in the tone of the discussion. So you know, with the with the Trump administration, you had a very a very hawkish USTR, a, a, a very strategic USTR as well, or, or at least one one willing to deploy lots of tactics. And then you had the president, um, and and the president was was special in his willingness to essentially hurt U.S. domestic interests to to make his trading partners terrified. Um, and so, for example, thinking about US-EU relations, for a while, there was this, this threat of tariffs on imported cars and car parts, which, which clearly 
worried a lot of, of German exporters rather a lot, right? And and the dynamic there was you had this U- United States trade representative who was, was sort of logical and, and rational and, and so on. But then you had uh, this other guy over here waving these sticks um, and threatening to do these things that, that wouldn't have been very good for America, but he was he was willing to do them, right? And so so essentially that, that, that threat was credible. Now, under a Biden administration, I don't think anyone thinks that a Biden president would be willing to do something that was just so obviously you know, bad for America, bad for car dealerships um, that would, would have that much resistance. Um, and so so that that is going to lead to a much calmer uh, US-EU relationship. Now, that's the really obvious difference. Um, I would tend to agree with Sam Lowe, though, that a lot of the, the complaints, the frustrations uh, some of them predated the Trump administration, but but many of the of the really important ones um, are likely to be uh, also held by Biden administration. Um, so take one that isn't that longstanding, but but nevertheless is is likely to persist. It's this question about the digital services tax, right? So um, various European governments are planning these taxes on big tech companies, which lo and behold, seem to be very concentrated on American um, big, big tech companies. There's a bipartisan, you know, feeling in the US that some of these taxes are, are discriminatory, they're singling out American companies. And there's a sense that that these European governments shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. That I fear is going to be a mess and would have been a mess even had had Trump won and, and is, is going to be a mess under Biden. I mean, what do you think Biden's approach to China will be and, and how do you think it's going to differ from Trump's? Um, Alan Beatty said in our event that uh, Trump's approach towards China has actually been pretty unsuccessful in the sense that uh, having massive tariff wars with Beijing hasn't really changed uh, China's behaviour that much. Um, so I guess... The question then is, do you think the Biden team agree with that assessment? Uh, and, and what do you think they're going to do differently to Trump? I completely agree with Alan uh, that, that the tariff war has not changed China's behaviour in the way that the Trump administration wanted. And, and in some ways, it may have actually made it worse. Right? You may have seen the Chinese double down on self-sufficiency because it, it, it saw that um, America was, was an unreliable partner. And so that that in some cases has led to even more state intervention to try and you know dominate the industries of the future. Um, I, I suppose I might reframe the question a little bit though, um, as one could see the Trump administration as having two objectives. You know, in an ideal world, it might want to change Chinese behaviour, um, but in a second best world, maybe they were just content with American companies. Uh, divesting from China, right, and serving serving the American market from a wider range of countries, um, you know, forcing companies to move to this China plus one strategy where they have their main base in China, but maybe they are also producing in Vietnam or Malaysia or, or wherever. And so from that perspective, it's probably a a bit too soon to say. And and you know, anecdotally, there seems to be evidence that companies are are trying to rethink their dependence on China as a as a production base. Um, it's going to take a few years for that to play out as supply chains supply chains take a while to to shift. 
so there, uh, if you think that is their objective, then then it's been a little bit more successful. And so the question for the Biden administration is whether whether they want that, right? Um, whether they want to continue sending those signals to businesses that you know what you cannot rely on serving the U.S. market from China. Um, and and from what I've seen so far, um, certainly their campaign materials, they were very. Uh, very reluctant to spell out what they wanted to do with China uh, in terms of the tariffs. They they didn't come out saying we would lift these. The the candidate Biden was very critical of those tariffs, um, but he did not go so far as to say I'm gonna gonna lift them on on day one. So that's a, the question: Is the Biden administration going to have this objective of of decoupling? And I guess stepping back from that, um, in terms of what I think they will do differently, you, you can characterize the Trump administration's trade policy towards China as as trade first and everything else second. There was almost a, a decoupling of trade policy from other areas of policy. Um, and actually, one of the remarkable things over the past year or so is that the, the phase one trade deal, this agreement that Trump managed to write up with China, actually seems to have held up even as all these other areas have have deteriorated markedly. So I think the difference under a Biden administration is that we're going to shift from trade policy first and trade policy is kind of in in its own special lane and given huge priority to uh, a kind of foreign policy first strategy where trade is one element, one important element of a relationship, but other factors are going to be more important. So human rights is going to be more important or cooperation on on climate change. So I I saw a speech by Tony Blinken, who's been nominated as as the next Secretary of State. And the language he was was speaking was very familiar. It was, you know, you've got to consider the US-China relationship as, as a whole. It's important to cooperate on some things like like climate change, um, but obviously recognizing that there are some areas that are very, very fraught um, that are going to require a less cuddly policy than might have been applied, say, five years ago. Okay, fantastic. The last question that I have really is on China and multilateralism. It's become a a bit of an axiom, really, that uh, Trump was bent on destroying the multilateral system and um, believed might is right and so forth. Um, but uh, but as you say, the Biden team isn't necessarily completely against the decoupling logic of some of Trump's actions. Um, and Gabriel Felbermeyer in our session said that going back to Adam Smith, you know, trust is an incredibly important ingredient in all commercial relationships. And if you don't trust the other side, then you need to have some defensive instruments to be able to deploy in order to, quote unquote, keep them honest. And obviously, the World Trade Organization hadn't been working particularly well even before the Trump administration came in. Um, there have been complaints from all sorts of people about China's trade distorting practices, um, not just the United States and the European Union. Um, a classic case is the Chinese government essentially using the state-directed financial system to, to funnel money to favoured exporting businesses. And the WTO isn't that much help against that kind of behaviour because cases can only really be brought if subsidy has changed the balance sheet of the government, not the banking system that it has informal power over. Um, And obviously, China is a big, important country and will resist changes to WTO laws. Um, 
so the big question is, you know, you know, even if the US starts supporting the WTO again and the appellate body is sorted out, um, is that really going to make that much difference to EU interests globally? I think the thing that, that, that keeps EU officials up at night is is the lack of the binding dispute settlement system, right? I, I, I think that the EU has been trying to develop its own more unilateral tools. Um, but the reality is that whereas the US has all these legal instruments, it's got it's got the Section 301 power where it can it can go off and investigate a country that it that it thinks is breaking the rules um, and act as judge during executioner and so you know use its power to prize open foreign markets uh, the EU just doesn't have that uh, and therefore it, it's it's weaker it it thrives in a rules-based system think of it as the kind of the the world's teacher's pet um, it, it really does or you know the the prefect or something it it does rely on this this rules based system to operate and so so i think there you know you you can see the eu has been trying to recreate something like the appellate body like the binding dispute settlement system but it, you know there are limits to how how well that can work if the us isn't involved there are various other countries that are not involved um and so I guess the kind of it sounds a bit abstract, but but restoring the appellate body and and going back towards a, a rules based system with independent arbitrators that that is something the EU really wants. And I think I think you kind of mentioned it almost offhand at the beginning. You know that the US could restore the appellate body and and everything will be lovely. But I, I I'm not sure that's going to be that straightforward from from within the US. This is actually also an area where where problems predated the Trump administration. The official who was really you know driving this policy of of stopping appointments to the appellate body, which is I guess what ended it. He actually was a holdover from the Obama administration. He stayed on. This is an area that really irritates um, a lot of trade lawyers in DC. Uh, there are there are frustrations on both sides. So I, I just don't. I'm not sure that's going to be resolved very quickly, um, even though the EU really wants it. Okay, well, um, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Sumaya. It was really helpful to get uh, your insight into uh, the new Biden administration and, and some thoughts about what's going to happen. We will pay an awful lot of attention to what happens over the next few months and see if there are any signals sent about whether the um, EU's approach is going to have to change and by how much as a result of Biden taking power. So again, thanks for joining us um, and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.